Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. friend who's a pastor, and he told me this story about how a woman in the church approached his wife, and they were sitting down to have lunch, and sure enough, they they reached a point in the conversation where the woman looked at this pastor's wife and said, what's it like? And she said, what's what like? She said, what's it like having a husband who is a spiritual leader? It's a very awkward moment, because here was this woman kind of coveting her husband in a weird kind of backwards way. In fact, if we've heard one complaint most consistently from Christian wives, this is it. It's this. He's just not a spiritual leader. The understanding is that once your husband becomes, quote-unquote, a spiritual leader, everything becomes right as rain. There are no more difficulties in the marriage. He puts down the toilet seat. He smells like roses all the time. He even knows who Mr. Darcy is from Pride and Prejudice, right? Even the 1940s version. Instead, well, excuse me, practically speaking, the presence of a spirit-led husband doesn't dissolve the natural difficulties of a marriage. In fact, a spirit-filled husband might actually bring more tension, more difficulty, more upheaval into your life in your home. See, let's be honest. Your husband's inability to fold a fitted bedsheet isn't exactly an act of sinful rebellion. I tried to fit, fold a fitted bedsheet yesterday. It did not go well. Instead, maybe we should think about our marriages as a God-intended pressure cooker that bring out the revealing of our own sinful, inadequate hearts. See, the presence of the Spirit's work in your husband, the presence of the life of Christ in your husband might simply mean that he repents quicker, remembers God's promises, and prays more but he probably won't stop letting you down. Now, guys, let's pick on you for a second. Let's pick on us, I should say. Christian husbands, what we often want to do is we want to disengage. We tend to think that a spirit-led wife would simply acquiesce to our every desire. That she only cooks steak wearing our favorite dress and her hair in a bun and all the makeup and everything else. This is why we have man caves and Sunday afternoon football and garages so that we can get away. But a spirit-led wife is something different entirely. When we look at Proverbs 31, we read this. She opens her mouth, this picture of of a productive, godly woman. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. See, a spirit-led wife is gentle and quiet, but only as she fears the Lord. Her job is to help you become a better man. And by her conduct, she invites you into a deeper relationship with Christ. So here we have these notions of 
femininity and masculinity that are informed by everything else other than the Scriptures. Just go and walk through your Christian bookstore and find all of the books about marriage. Pull them off the shelf and see that they are as numerous as they are varied. We have books from football coaches and football players. We have books from, uh, you know, life gurus and everything else trying to tell us how we can lead a productive marriage. But I think as we turn to 1 Peter this morning, I think he has something to say in this regard. See, Peter's intention for us this morning isn't simply to give us five steps to a better marriage. In fact, he's told us what our intention, what his intention was just in the last chapter in 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 and 12, and it's on the screen. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak of you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. See, that's the context for which Peter writes to us as husbands and wives here this morning. It's in this vein that Peter wants to speak to us about our marriage, that he wants to talk to us. And really, this is kind of the the drift, the, the, the flow of what he wants to say to us this morning, that husbands and wives both should push for a spirit-led husband. Husbands and wives both should push for a spirit-filled, spirit-led, Christ-centered, Scripture-honoring husband. We're going to see this in two movements here this morning. First, ladies, you get six verses. Guys, you get one. It's unfair, right? We'll talk about why that is. But first, in, in verses one through six, wives foster a spiritual husband. And then in verse 7, husbands, foster prayer by understanding and honoring your wife. That Peter is telling us that there is a rhythm to our marriage, that the way we treat our spouses actually encourages the husband to either pick up his life in Christ or actually tears it down. So let's dig in. Wives, foster a spiritual husband. Why does, why does Peter pick on wives so much here? We've got to remember that he just dealt with two issues of being subject. Remember this? We covered them last week. First, he said, uh, we should all be subject to the governing authorities, to the human institutions. He said that back in verse 13 of chapter 2. And then in, in chapters, chapter 2, verse 17, he told, called um, slaves to be subject to their masters. Well, now he picks up this idea of wives being subject to their husbands. And the the unifying, unique theme that is present in all of these things is uh, people who are in a position of weakness. And in no scenario does he actually pick up the, um, the interactions of what a governor should be, or does he pick up what a master should be. And now, though, he'll pick up what a husband should be, because I think it's a very important piece that he has to recognize. But here in verses 1 through 6, he says, wives, foster a spiritual husband. Look with me at 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. See, in these first two verses, Peter has a very clear movement here as he's discussing this. And what we're going to draw out is that Peter uh, draws our attention that uh, wives are not to win their husband through words, as he says in verse 1, 
Instead, what he's spo- they're supposed to do is, is they're supposed to visualize this life of pure and respectful conduct so that their husbands can see. And then when we get to verses 3 and 4 and 5, Peter's going to lay out this idea of adorning. In fact, you'll see that word repeated in those verses so that they can visualize the gospel for their husbands. And so we want to dig in in these first two verses, and we want to unpack wives are winsome with righteous acts, not nagging words. There it is in verse 1, right? Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, we might carry all kinds of notions into this verse, right? We might kind of carry all kinds of baggage from cultures or, or philosophies or whatever else it might be. We might have all kinds of notions of what this means, and, and, and we want to carry all of that and impose it on these verses. But we've got to stop and just think about what is Peter actually calling us to? See, Peter tells us that submission is winsome. If you remember that from last week, submission is winsome. And he carries that theme into our verses here this morning. So that even if some of them, he says in verse 1, disobey or do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. Now, Peter tells us that the husbands in view are disobedient to the word. If you remember back in chapter 1, uh, we purified our souls through our obedience to the Word of God and Jesus. If you remember back to chapter 2, when he's describing the elect and the non-elect, that these non-elect people were those that were disobedient to the Word in chapter 2, verse 10, and they stumble over the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And now we remember our context. Peter has called us to do good works so that others might glorify God on the day of our visitation. And now he's writing to these wives with unbelieving spouses. So now wives are invited to a dynamic whereby they can help their own husbands. They become God's instruments to stir their husbands' hearts toward repentance. This is worth saying. Wives, if you have an unbelieving husband... It's not your job to save them. That is the work of the Spirit who brings conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, who draws others to God to trust and faith in Him. Wives, you are not responsible to save your husbands, but you are responsible to carry out the actions that God may use to save him. I've heard of testimonies recently of of men coming to faith in Jesus Christ because of the righteous submission they've had to their husbands, even while those husbands were unbelieving. Perhaps that's what the Lord has for us here this morning. See, Peter tells these wives that these husbands can be one, as he says, without a word. They're one, even though they're disobedient to the word, they can be one without a word. I don't think that Peter has in mind kind of this wordless wifedom, right? He doesn't have in mind that, that we would just be silent in the presence of our husbands, that, that we would just kind of mute everything. We know this because Paul says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ, that if someone's going to come to faith in Jesus, there has to be an articulation of the gospel. But what actually is Peter saying? And we've got to put on our biblical thinking here for a second. If you remember back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, God created Eve as a helper, right? There was this kind of story that's going on where Adam is put into the garden with all of these animals, and God says, hey, you should name all of these things, right? And so he parades all of the animals, and he sees a male zebra and a female zebra, and he sees a male elephant and a female elephant. And then Adam starts to look for one that's suitable for him as a helper, and he can't find one. 
And so God puts him to sleep and he takes the rib out of his chest and he forms Eve. And at the end of Genesis chapter two, we have this statement out of Adam that is like, wow, God, you've made something for me that is amazing. You've made a helper for me and she'll be called woman for she was taken out of man. But what happens in that, in that account is uh, Adam and Eve rebel against God, and God starts to lay out some curses, right? You remember that Adam, uh, he's supposed to work the ground, but he's going to work it with futility, and he's going to eventually die. But the curse that he brings to Eve, and part of it is in Genesis chapter 3, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Thus, a wife's words are sometimes laced with rebellion and mutiny. And while the husband has been given this this concept or this role as head, a spiritual authority, the sin-soaked heart in the wife's chest rejects it. She's like a boxer who puts on the brass knuckles under the gloves. Sometimes she can use her words to kind of undermine the authority of her husband. And so it looks like she's fighting fair, but really underneath she's got some intention that's wicked and wrong. See Peter, see, Peter says that these husbands can be won by the conduct of their wives. Specifically, when the husband sees their respectful and pure conduct in verse 2. And we've got to stop and say, what does that mean? Respectful, pure conduct? Well, the good for us that Peter goes on and he describes this. And he uses this very open imagery. We're talking about adorning. So look at verse 3 with me. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how The holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. What's Peter saying here? First, he calls us to a negative recognition, right? He calls us not to adorn ourselves in a very particular way. He names it there in verse 3, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Now, if you're here and you have braided hair or gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, the culture's changed a little bit, hasn't it? See, what Peter's getting at is that uh, Peter doesn't have anything against these individual things. He's really oriented to someone who would dress themselves up to orient men toward their sexuality, to orient men toward their physical beauty and allure. The idea was to beautify yourself physically, to make yourself attractive to the opposite sex. It was kind of baiting the hook with the right kind of worm, as it were. We've all seen it, haven't we? A young woman grows up. She's attractive. She recognizes her beauty. And by the time she reaches her early 20s, her physical beauty has caused her to neglect her inward character. She figures out how to use her looks to get by, to get what others, to get others to do the things she wants them to do. She may have gotten through high school by uh, receiving help by just batting her eyes at the smart kid that lived, that sat next to her in class. She may have gotten through her work by uh, just Uh, getting through on her looks alone. 
And she gets married early, usually for the wrong reason to the wrong kind of person. And the marriage fails when either the spouse figures out that sex can't be the driving engine of a lasting relationship, or they just get tired of one another. And so by the time this young woman hits their 30s, and their body starts to fade, their beauty starts to fade, this once vibrant young woman is now left embittered and angry, mainly because no inner life was developed. You ever see that story play out? See, Peter gives a picture then in response in in verse 4 of proper adorning. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. See, Peter says that this beauty is marked by this imperishable beauty. Peter wants to talk about imperishable things in this letter. He's talked about the imperishable nature of our salvation in chapter 1, verse 4. He's talked about the imperishable seed of God's word in verse 23 of chapter 1. But this beauty, this beauty does not fade. It doesn't go away. It lasts eternally. In fact, the beauty wrought by the Spirit of God in Christ actually continues to grow and grow and grow inside of us. So it's imperishable, but this beauty is gentle and quiet, right? Ladies, how often does this qualify you? Great or gentleness and quietness. My wife found this thing. I don't even know what you call these things, right? Put it on on Facebook. We laughed about it. It's warm out now. School is almost out. My windows will be open soon. If you hear me yelling, just know that I've asked my family nicely at least five times before I resorted to the psycho mom voice, right? They are fine. I, on the other hand, need you to check on me. Bring wine, right? Now, I'm not promoting alcoholism in response to, you know, the problems of being a mom. But some of us, we have these pressures, right? We've asked five times, and and we want to use our voices to accommodate. We want to, to leave behind gentleness and quietness. Ladies, Peter tells us that our interactions with our husbands are to be marked by gentleness and quietness. That's peaceableness. And we might kind of roll our eyes and say, sure, make the women have to be quiet and gentle. Here we recognize that Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly. And when we put on gentleness and quietness, we trace the life of Christ for our husbands. In verses 5 and 6, he gives us a picture He says, it's just like Sarah. And he talks about the holy women who used to adorn themselves with submission. And then in verse 6, he he gives us this example of the life of Sarah. And the only recorded time in the Scriptures that Sarah refers to Abraham as Lord is in Genesis 18. And and if I were Sarah and I were, you know, with Peter when he were writing this, I would say, no, 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 talk about Egypt. Remember Egypt when my husband wanted to lie about who I was and put me at risk twice? But Peter wants to talk about the moments of Sarah's shame to some degree. See, Genesis 18, you remember the story. God and two visitors visit Abraham. And Abraham, like like we do sometimes when guests are coming over, he scrambles to put together a, a meal for God. And so he 
pops into the tent and tells Sarah, hey, prepare some cakes because, you know, God is here, right? And so she's making the cakes, and she's back in the tent, and she overhears this conversation between the pre-incarnate Christ and her husband. And God himself says to Abraham, uh, hey, this time next year, you're going to have a child. Now remember, Sarah's about 90 years old at this point in time. And so she responds in Genesis 18, 12, she says, Sarah laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? It's not her finest moment. She's laughing at the predictive abilities of God himself. So why does Peter use Genesis 18? I think there's three reasons. One, if you heard the statement that Sarah says, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, it shows that she just had a natural inclination to respect her husband. It's just built into her. When, when someone poked her in the middle of the night, she woke up and she spoke graciously of Abraham. It also shows, number two, that, Ab- that Sarah's submission shared Abraham's aim. I mean, you've got to think that right at that moment, Sarah's literally baking a meal that Abraham has asked her to make to help host this special person. And so it shows us kind of the respective quality of Sarah that's there as well. The third, and I think most importantly, God used Sarah's submission to Abraham in this instance to show himself to Sarah. See, Sarah's son would eventually be named Laughter. Remember Isaac? He was, he was named Laughter. And it comes from this very incident right here. And in submission to her husband, as she's honoring her husband, as she's kind of laughing at what maybe God is trying to bring about, God is actually showing himself to Sarah through her willing submission. I think that's why Peter takes us to that passage of all passages. Something else happens in these verses in verse 6. Peter says something interesting at the end of verse 6, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that's frightening. And we might say, how in the world are we Sarah's children? Who was Sarah's ultimate child? It was the person Christ, right? When we read through Genesis recently, we, we recognized that that seed that was promised to Abraham and Sarah would eventually be Christ. And so when Peter's telling them you're Sarah's children. It's not because they're physically descended from Sarah. It's because they're through faith, a a person who's exercising faith just like Sarah and Abraham had done. That is, women who faithfully relate to unbelieving husbands prove their connection to the promised Christ. Peter's expectation is that wives would live in submission to unbelieving spouses, doing good and being properly fearful so that they might win their husbands over. So we step back from these six verses for just a moment, and we see that wives, you have to fear appropriately. Remember last week, we we saw those four statements in the midst of of Peter talking to us about submission to governing authorities. And he said, you know, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. 
See, we have to learn how to fear appropriately. And there's something in our text that we may have missed if we weren't looking or paying attention to it. See, verse 2 says that wives should be respectful. And that word's probably most often translated fearful. In fact, that word is later repeated in verse 6. Do not fear anything that is frightening. So in verse 2, Peter says, uh, be afraid. And in verse 6, he says, don't be afraid. So which is it, Peter? Why are you contradicting yourself? Why are you talking, excuse me, over top of yourself, as it were? Well, there's two possibilities. Either Peter is willingly contradicting himself. or Probably the true answer is that he's speaking of two different contexts and two different people. The first is that we live out our pure conduct with fear before God. We live with fear before God that pushes us to a fearlessness in front of our earthly husbands. Not a respectlessness, not a a loud, unsubmissive heart, but a fearlessness that doesn't fear any physical consequences that might be there. See, wives, Peter desires your pure conduct to be driven by Godward fear. The Godward fear allows us not to be afraid of our unbelieving or disobedient husbands. So that means that Wives, when your husband asks you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that God requires, your fear is before the Lord. Remember, Peter called us to a a righteous fear of God's judgment. But here's the positive side of this. When your fear is properly placed, you can be a helper to your husband. Remember, that's what we saw in Genesis 2, right? You... Wives were created to help, to aid. And before you think, you know, like when you call your three-year-old child to come help you put the spoons away, that's not what we're talking about. In fact, the scriptures in the Old Testament speak about God as a helper, someone who comes alongside and aids when I can't do the thing I've been called to. Most notably, childbirth can't happen without you, right? With all of our medical miracles we have, we do not have the ability to produce babies through one gender. See, when your heart and your mind is properly situated before the Lord, you show Him quietness and submission. And that's when you invite Him into the pure conduct, into that Jesus reflection. Now, Peter's given the wives their six verses, and we should probably pay attention to the seventh verse, right? So this is what he says. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, the call is this. It's two things, understand and honor. Guys, we're called to understand our wives and to honor our wives. He says it first. He says, live with your wives in an understanding way. And we might immediately think, you know what i got to do? I've got to study my wife. I've got to know everything she likes. I've got to finally learn who Mr. Darcy is. I've got to you know, read all the books. I've got to do all the things that she loves. And, and that's what I have to do. But really what Peter is intending us for us to do is he's saying to live according to knowledge. And that might be knowing our wives and knowing what they love and what they don't love and and all of that. But probably more importantly, it's all of the things that Peter has written to us about in this epistle. 
It's telling us about how we should know about the exaltation of Jesus Christ. It's telling us about the coming day of judgment. It's telling us about our call to be holy as God is holy. We should know about the gospel, about how Jesus himself has laid down his life, paying our punishment and raising us to new life in Christ. And we should bring that to bear on our marriage. See, Peter calls us to live according to knowledge. And in light of that knowledge, then, he says that we should show honor. That's what he says there in verse 7. Uh, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor. And he gives us two reasons for why we should show honor. First, she is the weaker vessel. I used to love in premarital counseling, we would come to this passage and I would ask the husband, what's it mean that your wife is weaker than you? And just watch him squirm, you know, get really uncomfortable. And now, ironically, I'm in that place having to explain it to all of you. I think what Peter's saying here is nothing short of, she's just physically weaker. You know, ladies, you have something like 30% less muscle mass than your male counterparts. There's nothing else that really fits the context here either. There's not a moral weakness that's implied. There's not an emotional weakness, as some people have suggested. That just doesn't fit what Peter's saying. We're probably talking about physical weakness that puts you in some sense of danger when your husband's or, or male counterpart's choose to do so, which really informs what we said in verse 6, to not be frightened by any fear. Husbands, it's never okay for you to use your physicality to get what you want. You might not be physically violating your wife, but using your size and strength to intimidate is not acceptable. Peter says that showing honor isn't compatible with an overbearing sense of strengthfulness. So he gives us another reason. Not only is she the weaker vessel that we show honor to, we show honor to her because she's a fellow heir of the grace of life. Guys, she's, she's a child of God too can't just run over her. You can't just go on being inconsiderate of her. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, he gives us a clear example in Matthew 25, and he's talking about those who, who didn't have food or didn't have water. And when God's people treated them well, Jesus says that I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was naked and you gave me clothing. Jesus is saying is the way we treat those who are in weakness around us reflects our faith in him. So husbands, how are you treating those fellow heirs of the grace of life that God has entrusted to you? Finally, in verse 7, he gives us an outcome. He says that your prayers may not be hindered. There's other examples in the scriptures where our prayers are hindered because of our action. James chapter 4 says, uh, you ask and do not receive. That is, you pray and you don't receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly with impure motives. So this isn't unique in the scriptures. God's telling us another reason why we might not have our prayers answered. But notice the husband's concern is the same as the wife's. It's his spiritual vitality. 
the wife submits in, in order to invite her husband into a faith-filled life. The husband understands and honors to avoid his prayers being hindered. See, this passage hinges upon the outcome of a spirit-led husband. Don't discount that. Guys, I just sense that as we're here, as we're hearing this word from God, I sense that we have some work to do. I sense that we have to pick up the ball and run with it, that we have to take our spiritual life with priority, and we have to dive in, and we have to take our, our, our calling and take it seriously. We have to grab hold of this resurrected life in Christ. We have to take our wives with us and take our kids with us, and we have to do the things that God has called us to do. I speak to myself in that. Sometimes I find my own heart so lackadaisical in this. But the spiritual vitality of my house rests upon my rhythms and grace. See, husbands, this all centers around you. And guys, it's time for us to start taking our spiritual lives seriously. You might say, how? How do I do it? How do I, how do I pick up this ball and run with it? It's our job this morning not to just lay down law, not to just beat you over the head with, with new rules and regulations. See, I think embedded in this passage are some spots, some hot spots of God's grace that are shown to us. And I want to just take a moment just to pull those out so that we're not just left pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps again and again and again. See, I think what Peter's telling us here is that the root of marriage is grace. One of the ways he does this is he he tells us that husbands and wives are both heirs. He says it verbatim, explicitly in verse 7, fellow heirs with you of the grace of life. But he's hinted at it there in verse 6. He, he told our wives that when they have this pure and respectful conduct, that they are Sarah's children. That they somehow are kind of grafted into the lineage of this promise. See, whatever it is we inherit, we inherit in equal shares with one another. We may have different roles in our marriage, but the outcome of the spiritual life is the same for us all. See, there's no women's and men's spaces in heaven. All together are partakers. All of us receive the same gift of grace. All of us will see the same glories in Christ at his return. You might ask how. How are we co-heirs? The truth is that Jesus has shared his abundance with us. Jesus showed us a, a life of suffering and self-denial. He gave himself to the point of humiliation and exhaustion. <laughs> he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And finally, he laid down his life to give us, the undeserving sinners that we are, grace. By his full and final submission to his Father, he has established our spiritual life for us. And Jesus now lives in the presence of the Father as he's been exalted to the right hand of God. He sits in God's presence. He advocates on our behalf, and he has been exalted before us. And so now you and I, husbands and wives alike, now follow that rhythm of self-denial, of self 
giving so that we can take on the attitude of Christ. We can give ourselves away either in submission to our husbands or in honoring our wives, and then we can see exaltation happen. Do you see how Jesus modeled the rhythm of our marriages so that we could be participants in grace? See, Jesus' cross-to-crown dynamics is now available to us. Husbands and wives, Jesus is now your life. Because Jesus made himself nothing, you too can put away your sinful passions. You too can orient your life toward the well-being and consideration of another. By God's grace and the righteous life of Christ and the Spirit living inside of you, you can be the husband or wife he has called you to be. Amen? It's not just about knowing what you should do. It's about resting in Christ and the Spirit to do it. Day in, day out self-sacrificing, honoring, understanding, quietness, submission, all through the enablement of Christ's death and resurrection. See, when we get here, we see that it's upon all of us who have taken vows to one another to build a marriage that shares grace. How do you warm up a cold marriage? You ever do that? You ever go to bed at night and you can just feel the chill in the air? Two backs pointed at one another. You just feel the hardship between those two things. You just feel like there's just hardness there. What do you do? I felt it. If you've been married, you've felt that. How do you warm a a cold marriage? You have to stoke the fires of God's grace. You are co-heirs of grace. Make that the basis of your relationship to one another. See, this is the truth, right? A marriage that doesn't bear commonality and grace is headed in two separate directions. It doesn't matter what it is. If you met because you both love fly fishing, which I find... I don't know why I picked fly fishing anyway. Fly fishing is only going to keep you together for so long. If you met because you both love music, I just tell you, your love of music is only going to keep you together for so long. And you're going to hit year seven or year 15, these sweet spots where couples seem to kind of just get frustrated with one another. And you're going to go two opposite directions. Grace has to be that glue that holds a marriage together. It has to be the thing that brings us together because we're we're fellow heirs of the grace of life. And if I'm called to understand and I'm called to show honor, I'm not going to do it outside of the gospel's work in me. If I'm called to live in quietness and submission, if I'm called to to be that strong, bold woman that, that actually puts down my desires and honors my husband, I'm not going to do it outside of the grace of life in Christ. So how do I foster a grace-based marriage? You know what the building blocks of a grace-based marriage are? It's a grace-based life. So you build a grace-based marriage by reading and thinking and praying the gospel. The best gift that you can give your spouse is your spirit-led, Christ-exalting presence. 
So set aside time to speak about spiritual things to them. And speak about mundane, ordinary things in spiritual ways. Let's get practical for a second. Now you got to know that I'm not exactly the most romantic guy in the world. So when I talk about practical things, this is only going to take you so far. The foundation is what we just talked about, building grace into your marriage. But here's some helpful rhythms that we've found over the years. Can I just advocate for you to go on dates with one another? Take time, set aside time and money to be together with your spouse. There's some people that object and say, we don't have time or resources to date. And I, th- I think that that has to do with that we think a date is a French restaurant with a tie and a dress and, and just getting gussied up. I think that's the first time I've ever said gussied up. And maybe we need to think about dates as McDonald's ice cream and Walmart. So long as we're connecting with one another, that's what counts, right? Second encouragement, don't let your kids run the show. Some of us have this tendency, we have a child-centered home. Everything kind of centers around the needs and the desires of our children. And it's going to tell you that that makes for a really hard circumstance for marriage. So what you want to do is you want to push away from a child-centered home. A child-centered home disintegrates when, when kids leave the house, right? What we want to do is we want to press into a, a knowledge of one another that is primary so that our kids actually they, they benefit from a strong husband and wife relationship. Third consideration, work well and rest well. Work well and rest well. Husbands, I'm hearing so much now of the demands of the workplace that are upon you. And that's fine. Like you, you have to do those things. That's part of uh, the season of life that God has called you to do. But I just want to encourage you that you work well while you're at work. But when you come home, you have to learn how to rest well. And you have to learn how to husband well. And you have to learn how to, learn how to wife well and do all of these things. You have to learn how to leave work at work and, and take home what's, what's necessary for your home. No matter what the pressures that your workplace puts on you, this is what's incumbent upon you as a, as a father, as a husband. It's for you to, to put on these rhythms in faith in Christ that would actually secure the well-being of your household. I need to learn that. I need to figure out how to do it. Sometimes my work bleeds over into my home life. My home life bleeds over into my work. But all of this shows us that we have to foster graciousness in our life. Graciousness so that we can carry the roles that we need to carry because we're all fellow heirs of the grace of life. We didn't talk about this, but we recognize that husbands and wives carry different roles, but they bear the same essence before God. Did you catch that? We're equal partners before the Lord in terms of the outcome. We'll all eventually partake of God's grace in in eternity. But right now we bear different roles and distinct roles in the same way that God himself bears distinctions and roles. The son has one role, the spirit has one role, the father has one role, but all are God. So we recognize this morning as we come to this text that we are fellow heirs of grace and that's how we relate to one another. 
I want to pray this morning for us that we would be people who press in to our individual roles for the glory of God and Jesus Christ and the betterment of our spouse. Let's pray to that end this morning. Lord, I pray now that you would raise up strong husbands, that you would raise up strong spiritual men to lead their homes. And I pray now that you would also raise up strong, quiet, submissive wives. They may may be strong in faith to you that plays itself out in a loving, helpful direction with their husbands. We pray that above all these things that you would be honored and glorified. Be honored in the way we speak to one another. Be honored in the way we interact with one another. Use your spirit to shape us and conform us to the image of your own son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.